Years ago, a group of believers started a new church in a town that had a need. For the first few years, uh, everything was going great by their testimony. They loved each other. They felt unified. And the church was growing. It grew beyond their expectation. Some of them said that it was the best church they had ever been part of. The third year, however, they faced a major decision. First decision they needed to make as a church family that would really help set their direction. And that's when they realized that there was some disagreement among them as to what that direction ought to be. Soon there was this sense of uh, undercurrent of murmuring as some disagreed with what some others wanted to do with that big decision. And then frustrations began to mount as Uh, Some people criticized the opinion of others and tried to, in that way, convince them to change their mind and to agree with them. Criticism of opinion built up then to criticism of behavior. Well, you said this, and uh, that was wrong, and you did this. With accusations flying in both directions. Eventually, the dissension got so great that literally one group sat on one side of the church, the other group sat on the other side, and in the middle was another group, a third group, wondering what has happened to our church. We don't have to wonder, even from that description and this distance, since we are also fallen creatures, we can discern exactly what was going on there. You see, the old nature, our old nature, continues to rise up Whenever somebody seems to get in our way, we have marked out a path forward. Here's what we ought to do. But now here's this person standing in the way, and the old nature knows exactly how to respond to that. Now, we might consider such individuals the ones standing in the way, We might consider them problem people. But in reality, they're just ordinary people. Ordinary fallen people who struggle with pride, selfishness, ambition, and all the other sins that make them and us. We can't, any of us, be pointing fingers here makes all of us, at times, difficult to live with. Can you admit that? I'll bet it's true. You're difficult to live with sometimes. 
here at church, in your home, where you work. What do you do about that? Well, you could consider moving to a deserted island where there won't be any other difficult people. Uh, It's got some challenges to it. Or you could just grin and bear it and keep it inside. Uh, Romans 12 has a better idea. And one that is based on the power of the gospel to change. Are you ready for this? A solution that is based on the power of the gospel to change you. Oh, you're hoping it was going to change the other guy, weren't you? Of course we were. No, it's the power of the gospel to change you. Here's what our passage today is all about. Because the gospel transforms lives, you must respond to fallen people with grace. Not with toleration. Not with abandonment. But with the grace that the gospel offers. Now, there might be some parts of this, though, that are like, what? Nobody could do that. So it's important to keep in mind, this is Romans 12, chapter that started with a reminder of what the gospel is and why God sent his son to die in your place. It's to change how you think. This passage is calling for some radical change. But it comes coupled with that gospel. Verses 14 through 18 of Romans 12 begins this call to respond with God's grace by saying to strive to avert conflict. That is, there are some things you can change in your life that would just soften the issues that can bring things to a head and cause such dissension. If you'd be willing to make some changes, all of that could diminish and maybe even slip below the surface. Strive to avert conflict. What could you do to avert conflict? Well, here's, here's the first aspect of the radical part of this. Verses 14 and 15, it can start by reversing your natural impulses. Uh, is that actually possible? You've got these natural reactions. Can you not only stop them, can you invert them and have your response actually be the opposite? You see, this answer includes nothing less than that. Not making a little adjustment here and there. This is turning your, the, the whole thing upside down. And what comes naturally, what seems right, don't do that anymore. Now, what specifically is he talking about? Well, here's where he uses that strong word, persecute. And he says to bless those who persecute you. So this includes the very worst instances of somebody getting in your way. 
perhaps even beyond what we can imagine in our society right now, although it's getting a little easier as the the months and years go on to imagine that happening in our country as well. Somebody is actually persecuting you. You know what the natural response would be. It could be anger. It can be hatred. We can list a long list of things. Malice. But he says, bless them. Now that doesn't mean pronounce a blessing on them. Bless you. Well, you don't want to call that person brother, probably. But let's, cut, let's knock that down a few notches. Let's, take, let's make sure we understand this includes not just the extreme of persecution, but all the way down to somebody that's even just irritated you a little bit. Just getting in your way, a bit of a bother. Bless them doesn't mean bless you, brother. It's actually a decision to pray that God would bless them. Whoa, that actually makes it effective, wouldn't it? I mean, if I just say bless you, that doesn't do him any good. But if I say, Lord, would you bless that person? Now, you're not blessing them to do the wrong thing. If somebody's persecuting God, help them to persecute more effectively. But you're praying for their overall good success. Ask for God's favor on that person. Ask for God to do him good. It's so difficult to imagine praying and actually meaning it. Wow, this is going to take a lot of grace. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And see, God knows exactly what that natural response is. And that one as well means you need to resist all efforts to say, God, would you pay him back? Would you help me get even here? Would you make him regret the day he got in my way? Now, he just puts a big red X right over that prayer. Inappropriate. Unacceptable. I'm not even going to answer that prayer. You might as well stop praying for it, the one I will answer, God, would you give him good success? Verse 15 doesn't get any easier. I think we need to understand that verse 14 includes every category of trouble somebody might cause for you, for the greatest to the very least, And now there's no great contrast with verse 15, because if you're interpreting verse 14 for the most vicious of the unsaved people, then verse 15 sure can't apply to them. But if verse 14 is describing every category of person who is causing you any issue at all, verse 15 is talking about the very same people. Once you're done praying for God to give them good success, then you also begin looking for opportunities 
to share in their life events, looking for instances in which they have cause for joy, and you joining them, and you express your joy that this good thing has come about. may or may not even be occasion for you to say, I've been praying that God would bless you that way. But this is not for show. This is not pretense. This is not acting like you're happy that things are going well for them despite what they're doing to you. This has to come from the heart. Okay, how's that going to happen? Well, we're right back to the grace of the gospel again. That's the only way this is going to happen. So this person that's causing you trouble, rejoice over what good things they have to rejoice about. And on the other hand, you weep with those who weep. They've had a misfortune. They've had a setback. They're facing a hardship. Someone in the family is very ill. Someone has died. Whereas the natural response would be, ah, well, I didn't mean for God to go quite that far, but I've got no regret that bad things happened to that person. No, a real victory here would be you go to that person and with a genuine heart, you can tell them, I am so sorry. Let me join with you in expressing that sorrow. That's reversing your natural impulses. Verses 16 through 18, we've got a a collection of other aspects of ways to avert conflict. And they all share this characteristic. It's a matter of adapting your personal preferences. Instead of insisting on having things the way you want, you realize, well, you know, actually that could go either way. I can give there. I can can walk that back a little bit. That's just a personal preference, but I don't have to have it that way. I'll make some adjustments. Why? to avert conflict with this person or these people. That would involve, in verse 16, changing attitudes that you hold that aggravate others. And you can learn by experience, uh, maybe even anticipate what's going to bother somebody else. Okay, then again, the natural impulse would be I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going, to, I'm going to act this way anyway. Well, not if you're following the grace of the gospel. Instead, you want to change attitudes that might aggravate others. In fact, verse 16 has three different instances of a, of a Greek word that doesn't come up clearly. We don't see all three of these clearly in English translation, but all three of them share this feature. It's a matter of how you think. That reflects attitude. And how you think is a part of what the gospel wants to change in your life, how you think. 
So here is some ways to think correctly. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. That involves thinking. It involves planning. What do I need to change in order to be in harmony with this other person? Again, whether that person's in your home or in your workplace or right here at church. Think it through. Consider this. Make sure you're thinking correctly. And if you're thinking correctly, that's going to change some things. He, he emphasizes that in the next words. Do not be haughty. There's an issue with pride deep in the heart of every single fallen person. Furthermore, that means that it doesn't matter how long you've been saved, there's still at least a shade of that left now, and probably a little bit more than that. So don't be haughty, he says. That's what comes naturally, but you need to change that. Feeling haughty aggravates other people. Even more important, it aggravates the Lord. He tells us he hates pride. Tells us that repeatedly in God's word. So do not be haughty. That's a change. But associate with the lowly. I don't think we should understand that as a call to condescend. You really belong up here but lower yourself and associate with some humble people. I think this is actually a call to be a humble person. Associate with them because that's exactly where you belong. You belong among those who recognize they deserve nothing. Every good thing is a gift of God's grace. I am not superior to other people. I don't have greater cause than others to have things my way. I am not always right. I got to tell you, that was hard to say just now. And it's hard for you to say it too. Especially when you can't see that you're not right in a particular instance. Which is why we have to stop to think. Okay, what are the chances you're right every time? It's not very great. The reality is then you need to take your place among the other people that recognize their humbleness. Adopt this position of humility. That requires a change of thinking. It requires lowering your inflated opinion of yourself. And he says that one again at the end of verse 16. Never be wise in your own sight. What a contrast that represents. We're supposed to go from always thinking I'm better, I have a better view of reality, always thinking that we're up here, to never thinking that. 
whoa, he's asking so much in this passage. And, uh, and we're, we're hardly halfway through. There's more to come. Not only change attitudes that aggravate others, verses 17 and 18 say to choose actions that alleviate conflict. You've got some choices to make. You could take this approach or this approach. Choose the one that alleviates conflict. We're not talking about violating Scripture here. This is not, uh, should I do the right thing or the wrong thing? Those are not choices. Well, they're choices, but not choices in this context. The choices between two entirely acceptable ways of approaching an issue. Different actions you could take. One is going to cause somebody else to rise up, and the other might cause that same person to settle down. That's the choice. Verses 17 and 18 urge all of us to take. So verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Could a believer, a fellow member of a church, actually do evil to someone else? Of course. Of course it's possible. It happens. And sometimes you might be the one who's guilty of doing that. The natural instincts show up here again. All right, I'm going to get back at him. Respond in kind, but God says, no. No, you're on the receiving end of something wrong. Repay no one evil for evil. Hey, if it was wrong for him, how is it okay in God's sight for you to do it? So you would only do that if you didn't stop to think. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. There it is again. You've got to change how you're thinking. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. I can do it this way, and it's going to really aggravate that person. Or I can make a little adjustment, approach it from this direction, and he's going to look at my action and say, well, that made sense. That was the right way to handle it. That was nice. Choose that one. But you have to think about it. Consider this. Give some thought to this. Rather than just go with your instinct. What is honorable in the sight of all. See, even an unsaved person can recognize Actions that are honorable. But ultimately, of course, this is in the sight of God. He needs to be seeing you making choices, taking steps, involving an activity and an approach to an issue in a way that he sees is honorable. He sees it all. Verse 18, 
is, a, is an appropriate reminder for us that for all of these radical changes God is expecting, he's still a realist about this. As he couches this and qualifies this next call by saying, if possible, so far as it depends on you, the reality here is you're not the only one here. You, if, if somebody is really determined to have an attitude toward you and to cause trouble for you, it's entirely possible that there's nothing you can do differently that can make him act differently. So he says, if possible, and it might not be, so far as it depends on you, and you, you are still having to wait to see how he responds, live peaceably with all men. Okay, that means the unsay people at work. Do your best. That means you have to try. Just don't write them off and say, I'll never be able to get along with that person. Give God's grace ample opportunity to see what he can do to enable you as much as is in you to live peaceably with all men. Last week I was in my study at home. It's on the second floor. And I, I, I try to concentrate, but there is a window right there. And this one moment, a, a bluebird caught my attention. He was perched on the roof of our porch, which is right there, not very many feet away. And uh, he, he was a hungry bluebird. How did I know he was hungry? Well, he was the bright, beautiful blue that indicated a male bird. So I figured they're always hungry. What's remarkable about this one is that he had a, a worm, a squirming worm, dangling, dangling from his feet, uh, his uh, beak. Well, it was under his foot for a little bit. He actually dropped it on the roof and kind of pecked a little bit to get it to calm down and picked it up. <laughs> and then he's surveying the territory. And I knew exactly what was going on in his head. Man, would I love to just swallow this thing. And well, that's a natural instinct, right? Why didn't he do it? There it is, dangling. He was there for, oh, more than a minute. And I could just imagine him going back and forth. Well, yeah, I could eat this worm, and, and uh, I could find another one for later. But down below was a birdhouse. And in that birdhouse, there were three little baby bluebirds. And so what he's doing is going back and forth. Do I eat this worm and find another one for the, for the kids? Or, and right then he swooped down, entered the birdhouse, and distributed the worm. How did he do that? How does a hungry bird decide, I'm going to do this instead? I think the answer is that, yes, there's a natural instinct, satisfy your hunger. 
But God had given to that bluebird another instinct. And he decided to follow that one. Yes, you have a natural instinct that makes you want to rise up and retaliate in some way. That's natural. In this case, God didn't give that. It's natural only because it's sinful. And that's what's natural for us. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, God has given you another instinct. And that is to do it His way. And that's the choice you have to make. Do what pleases you, or do what pleases God. These verses say, make the choice to avert conflict. Though that goes against everything that you might feel on the inside. Now, let's say you succeed in averting conflict. Let's say you find God's grace sufficient, and it'll never fail. You find God's grace sufficient to get victory, and you're actually doing better. You're averting conflict. But there are some past wrongs that you've endured, and you've still got that in the back of your mind. Yeah, I'm getting along okay now, but I've never forgotten what that person said, what that person did. The, the, the next three verses are in advance then, beyond just averting current conflict. Strive to defeat evil. Here's a call for real victory. Strive to defeat evil, and that begins, it has to begin, first of all, in verse 19, by rejecting the urge for personal vengeance. There is, there's that natural thing again, but reject that urge to get even. And there's a really important theological reason for this, and that is that God has marked out vengeance as his exclusive domain. Nobody better encroach on his territory because he reserves that for himself alone. You must not venture there. And here Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And he begins this by adding the word beloved. I I think this might be a reminder that you are loved by God, and he started loving you while you were still an enemy of his. Amazing! But that's where you've been. You've been the recipient of God's love while you were an enemy. Now, you've got some, well, enemy seems a little strong, but you've got some troublesome people in your life. Remember, you are loved, though you didn't deserve it. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Okay, there's no softening that one. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, here's God's declaration of territory. This is mine. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is out of bounds. 
although it sure seems to be appealing to us. Boy, I'd sure love to get even, to say a, something that's just a zinger and sets that person in his place. That's mine, God says. Here's another radical change he calls for. Verse 20 begins, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Choose to be kind. Kind to the person that's causing you trouble. These two expressions of meeting needs, something to eat, something to drink, these are practical expressions of the prayer you already uttered asking for God to bring that person good success. Well, I see a need here. God bless that need. God, this guy's hungry. Would you give him some? Well, actually, I guess maybe I better give him some food. I better give him something to drink. Or whatever the need is, whatever he lacks, instead of seeking vengeance, you meet the need. Now, there's a reason for that. He adds that in verse 20. He says, For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Yes! That's what I want to do. Okay. I can, uh, I can give, do some good to him, and he's going to be miserable. No, that's not the point that he'd be miserable. The point is that if you're kind, he is going to feel ashamed. Or at least he might. Ashamed. Full of guilt. Oh, boy, he's so kind to me. And after I treated him that way, what's going on here? The goal is not the misery. The goal is the spiritual victory that might result from that. This person might actually get right with God. That's why these three verses together are striving to get to defeat evil. You reject that urge for vengeance, and then you pursue the goal of spiritual triumph. I don't just want to get along with this person. I actually desire victory. Victory for him. But you see, that has to begin with victory for me. Because there's a struggle going on in our hearts about all of this. Verse 21 is a succinct, powerful conclusion to all of it. Be not overcome by evil. You see, that's exactly what's going on here. For you to proceed with natural instincts for how to respond to people that are causing problems, you will be doing evil. You will be overcome by evil. You are succumbing to its influence. 
Be not overcome by evil. There's a battle going on, and it's in your heart. Be not overcome by evil. Don't you suffer this defeat. How do you get victory? That's the rest of verse 21. Overcome evil with good. Good here represents the decision that I am going to do it God's way. I am going to stifle these inner instincts. I am going to think about how to reduce conflict. I am going to refuse any opportunity to gain vengeance, retaliate against that person. I'm going to look for every opportunity to meet a need. That's good. That's victory. Anything else is nothing but defeat. The individuals in both factions of that divided church they knew exactly what they needed to do. There was no lack of, of understanding here. There was even one time when the leaders of both sides said they wanted to do what was right. But it became clear in, in that the very same day that they had stopped short of actual repentance and confession, and immediately settled back into their hardened condition. Soon the neutral group in the middle just drifted away, stopped coming. wasn't too long after that that one of the other groups slowly drifted away as well. They just gave up. The one that was left... Proclaim victory. Now we can have it our way. But it was a very shallow, very hollow victory. And the repercussions of that persisted in that church for years. I'm not even sure they're through it yet. Our church faces a major decision tonight. And no, I have not manipulated the, uh, the, the passage here. I want to land on this passage on this day, the beginning of June. Okay, this is how God's arranged it. But I'm not going to miss the opportunity to remind us it's a major decision. By God's grace, we went through a building process 12 years ago and emerged stronger and with greater unity. Only God can do that. But only God can do it this time too. You aren't ready to participate in that discussion and in that decision tonight if you have an unsettled conflict with someone in our church family, you are not qualified to participate.
You must settle that conflict. There cannot be any inroads for Satan. Get a foothold and make this whole project. And and what's at stake? Really, the whole future of our church. You aren't ready to participate if there is unsettled conflict in your home. You've got to deal with that. It's afternoon. Okay, I'm not urging people to stay home tonight. I'm saying you go home and you get it right and you come back again tonight. And let's move forward where we can be confident of God's grace. Ultimately, you aren't ready to participate if there's an unsettled conflict between you and God. Don't come back with sin in your heart. Get that right with God. We can't move forward effectively. I mean this to every individual in our church. We can't move forward effectively if you aren't living for God. And living for God includes living with people. He gives grace for that. There's an irony here. Living with fallen people with grace requires grace. You've got to ask for God's help. God, I don't want to go ask forgiveness for that, from that person. He'll give you grace to do it. God, I don't even want to get along with that person. He can give you grace for that too. Grace that will forgive and enable. And there is no exaggerating how important this is. So let's bow for prayer. Examine your heart. Ask for God's help. Father, we bow before you knowing you well deserve our complete obedience. You deserve our trust that your grace is actually able to do what this passage describes. Father, we need your help then now. At every time the potential for conflict arises, Father, we need your help to choose your path, to avert conflict, to let vengeance be entirely in your hands, and to do good instead of evil. Would you help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.